Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you're looking at an app on your device or you have a printed copy, as I still highly encourage you to bring to church, I want you to find the second book of your Bible. Your Bible begins with the book of Genesis. That word, of course, means beginning. And then the second book of your Bible is the book of Exodus, the great leaving of God's people. Exodus. And when you find the book of Exodus, I'd like for you to find chapter 2. For those of you who are guests of ours, we began last week. You're not too far behind, and all these sermons are available on every platform you listen to anything. We began a new sermon series through the book of Exodus, which also marked a new journey through the book of Exodus called God Sent a Man. I'm very excited about the opportunity to take this book and to walk you through it over the next few years in the life of our church, approximately a chapter a week. And we come to the second chapter and we meet the main human figure of the book of Exodus. The hero of the book of Exodus is most certainly the faithful God that we serve. But God, as is always the case, uses men and women to accomplish his purposes. This is one of the great joys of knowing the Lord, that we not only know him and we celebrate in our eternal fate as saved, redeemed, sealed, we have the hope of heaven, we then get the privilege and the honor of being used, being tools of his handiwork, that he would use us to bring glory and honor to himself by blessing others and by making the gospel no, give me a man or a woman who will begin their day by praying, Lord, would you use me today? And I'll show you someone who will make an impact on the lives of so many. Speaking about the lives of so many, humans have a fascination with, well, humans. We like to study one another. Social media has exponentially grown this. We have allowed one another into the version of life that we portray in our images, our pictures, or our stories. Now, before the invention or advent of social media came the idea of writing down someone's story. If someone writes a story about you, it is called your biography. If you write your biography, it's called your auto biography. And I heard a leader say just this year that he stopped reading books on leadership and started reading biographies of great leaders. I thought that was a fascinating insight. I've sort of been exhausted by books on leadership, usually written by people who aren't leading anything. And I found myself being drawn more to reading biographies of great men and women who led great movements of God because it's a front row seat to see the ups and downs of their life and to really stand on the shoulders of their life lessons. That's really only the one of two ways you can get life lessons. You only get to live once on this side of heaven and therefore you acquire a series of life lessons. You've learned some things in your life that you learned because you lived it. But when you read a biography, when you study the life of another man or another woman, you have the purview, the perspective of not only learning from your life lessons, but learning from their life lessons. Chapter 2 is an introduction to this character, a man named Moses. You can leave the church, you can leave Christianity, 
and you will see the influence and the significance of Moses worldwide. A secular, non-theological, and not always accurate source of information known as Wikipedia defines Moses this way. You could Google this this afternoon, not right now. Moses is considered the most important prophet in Judaism and one of the most important prophets in Christianity. Wikipedia got that right. Islam, the Druze faith, and the Baha'i faith, and other Abrahamic religions. According to both the Bible and the Quran, Moses was the leader of the Israelites and lawgiver to whom the authorship or acquisition from heaven of the Torah, the Hebrew for Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Greek word for the first five books of the Bible is Pentateuch, same thing, the first five books of the Bible is attributed to Moses. Wikipedia actually got it right. But it shows you something. It shows you that Moses is not some minor character inside of our faith. Every person in the Bible is significant. Every person in the Bible existed because we believe the Bible is true. It does not mislead us. But there is perhaps no worldwide of religion more significant person than the person of Moses, the great deliverer of Israel into their opportunity to inherit the promised land. Why study his life? Why even study the book of Exodus? Remember what I told you last week? We studied the book of Exodus for several significant reasons. The first reason we study the book of Exodus is because we are them. We've just declared in song that we're the people of God. And if we're the people of God, we ought to read the biographies of the people of God. We also study Exodus because we live in their world. You may say a lot has changed since antiquity. I'll tell you two things that have not changed. The brokenness of the world and the goodness of God. Those two things have not changed. And so what you'll find as we study the life of Moses is that he's like you. I'm not picking on you. We'll pick on me. Moses is like me. Not that you and I would ever compare ourselves to his prophetic office, to his patriarchal importance, but Moses is going to get it unbelievably right sometimes. We're going to flip the page, and he's going to be a complete and total, the Greek word is, knucklehead. And that's how my life is. There are times when I can exhibit great faithfulness and courage only to find myself falling flat on my face as if I'm only following the Lord for the first day of my life. We're going to see this in Moses. We study the book of Exodus. We study Moses because we serve Moses' God. The God of Moses is the God who lives in you if you're a Christian this morning because his story and their story, what's our scripture? The Bible does not return void. The reason that we study these epic stories is because they teach us of the character of God in every study of discipleship that anybody has done in the last half century. There is a direct correlation between biblical knowledge, knowing the Bible, and walking faithfully with the Lord. It does not mean that knowing the Bible equates faithfulness. But spiritual maturity comes when you see the world the right way. We see the world the right way when we look at the world through the lens of God's Word because God rightly defines Himself, defines us, and defines His world through these amazing true stories. 
And finally, I want to study these people. I want to study their leader, Moses, because I am to fall in love with their Savior every single day. Remember what I shared with you last week? I referenced from the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses. Now, Paul did not preach that the gospel was about Moses. But Paul preached that the Old Testament believers, following the Lord God's leadership through a man named Moses, walked into the will of God as a foreshadow of when a better Moses would appear, a better Savior who would complete what Moses and Abraham and others began. This is why he says, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. And what was that food? And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So while we study Moses, don't ever forget, the Lord moving in Moses' life is the one I prayed to this morning. It's the one, he's the one you sang to today. This is, of course, why in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, now these things took place as an example for us. I learned from Moses, so I emulate his faithfulness, and I don't want to repeat his mistakes. But I also learned from Moses because studying Moses makes me cheer him on when he's a Savior, but it makes me long for a better Savior than even Moses. And we know one this is why Jude says in the fifth verse of his book, there are no chapters in Jude. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that is Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude's warning, Jude's warning the church. And he's saying, yeah, Moses is used as the deliverer. Jesus, of course, is the Savior. You ever gone to a team building exercise or some sort of orientation day. All the teachers in the room went to teacher orientation. You know that thing you go to in the auditorium when you really want to be working in your classroom, that thing? And, and, and usually there'll be some sort of team building exercise. We did one this week with some of our staff. We actually went up to the top floor of the Denny's building and, and they let us use that space and we had a little team building and we spent the day dreaming and praying together, kind of kicking off the semester. It was a lot of fun. We played some games. They divided us into teams. It looked like VBS broke out. I had a green bandana on and we came in second because another team cheated. But, um, <laughs> but, but. It's funny, at one point we pushed all the chairs aside. We're all sitting in the floor. We've got green bandanas and green hats and green glasses on each team, pink, green, red, blue. And one of the corporate executives from Denny's just walked by, and I'm sure they're thinking, and this is the spiritual leadership of Church at the Mill right here. This is, this is what we got here. But as we were doing that, it reminded me that there are often those situations where you are in a new context, and they'll say, tell your story in one minute. Tell us who you are, where you from. And, and you sort of get good at that. For those of you who are in sales, you know your elevator pitch. You know how to create a need out of a situation so that you can move that person to understand how your product meets their need. This is what we do in sales. Any teacher knows that you have just a few moments in any particular period to really gather their attention and to really teach. Any coach knows that you can practice football for three hours, but there's about 15 minutes there of a sweet spot where everybody's tuned in and you can actually get a little bit better. You don't know when that's going to happen, so you try to structure it. Everybody knows that very few of us have the time to look at someone and say, hey, 
I don't have anything going on for the next seven hours. Would you tell me your story? Most of us want to know something about someone, but I'm not interested in giving you my whole day. I mean, give me the Reader's Digest version of how you got to where you are. Now, the reason that we want to know is because we connect people to their story. We find common interest in people. When someone tells me where they're from, if I've been to where they're from, I may ask a specific question. And you can watch people's eyes light up in a conversation. If you know where their hometown is or you've been where they went to school and they feel that common bond. Exodus 2 (laughs) is a Reader's Digest of not one year, not five years, but the first 40 years of Moses' life, and it goes fast, and it's really in four scenes. So allow me to give you those scenes this morning, and I'll teach you a biblical lesson from each one. I would call scene one of Moses' biography rescued. It begins in that very familiar place that we all remember from our days in Sunday school. Now a man from the house of Levi, verse 1, went and took as a wife a Levite woman. Now later we'll know their names. We'll get to that. But right now, all Moses wants us to know about his beginning is that his daddy was a Levite and his mama was a Levite. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, the English leaves a little bit to be desired there. I think every baby's a fine child, and I've never seen a mama look at her baby and say, this is not a fine child. You know, we can look at it and go, hmm. But but the Hebrew actually carries the idea that she looked upon him with favor and wanted him. A baby's born. Why is that important? Because think about how sad chapter 1 ended. Look at the last verse of chapter 1. You have your Bible open, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. What a terrible infanticide. Really a genocide. Pharaoh is trying to destroy and break the back of the Hebrew flourishing. Chapter 1 doesn't end with any resolution. It just ends with this terrible plight. And by the way, this is not a tale. This is a true story. Real babies were ripped out of the arms of real mothers and thrown into a real river and died, of course, a terrible death. This was happening. And yet Moses' mother, I'm sure, felt what every other mother felt. She decided to do something about it. Who is she? We'll meet her later. She was a Levite. Her husband was a Levite. That's going to come into play. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer. You ever try to keep up with a three-month-old? When she could hide him no longer, she took him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. It's a mud and a mixture She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to 
him. We've seen this depicted, I remember, the Disney animation story, and it shows the basket floating over the waves and through miraculously the teeth of a crocodile and banging up against ships. Well, that's, of course, not what the Bible says. So here's the point. The Hebrew soldiers would come by consistently perusing, excuse me, the Egyptian soldiers would come by consistently perusing the Hebrews. And they would see a child, and they would want to know what's the child's gender. Back then, like us, they were binaries, either a boy or a girl, and they would say, this is a little girl, fine, go on your way. But if a boy was found, he would be destroyed. You can hide a baby for a little while, but once the baby gets old enough and their lungs get large enough, it's hard to hide a three-month-old. It's hard to live life and go to a well and get water and tend to stock and do what you need to do. Now, there's no mention here of Moses' father, but we know from the book of Hebrews that Moses' mother and father were both in on this. But remember what Moses' father was, a slave. He was gone during the day, working, and at times he would be moved from camp to camp depending on where Pharaoh was building a city or a storage place or a palace or some sort of temple to a false god. And so the highlight here, ladies, is yet another woman and her daughter. I think it's fascinating that before a man takes the microphone, before any leadership happens through Moses' life, which is ordained by God, it is the midwives in chapter 1 and the mother and a brave sister in chapter 2 who orchestrate this great deception to save Moses' life. Now, the fascinating thing is, is that the Bible in the Hebrew doesn't say basket. It says ark. I remember an ark. And by the way, the parallel is specific. Every person reading this in the Hebrew would know immediately what's taking place. Both Noah and Moses are saved from watery tragedy. Both Noah and Moses are saved in an ark in the very water that was supposed to destroy them. And both Noah and Moses will be used to bring forth a new people. Noah's family repopulated the earth. And Moses will issue forth from Mount Sinai a covenant that will be completed in the giving of the law so that the people of God will be clearly defined and given to serve the Lord as priests from him to the rest of the world. So notice that all of this is pulled together by a God who's orchestrating a very specific plan of redemption. Christ is involved in the ark in both places moving toward another piece of wood where he will save my life. And when we think about this story, it really breaks down first into important heritage and ingenious heroism. The very first verse tells us that a baby's born and he's born of spiritual blood. The Levites would later become the tribe who will be the spiritual leaders of Israel. And in many ways, Moses will be the first spiritual leader of the people because he will deliver to the people the words of God. And when the people fail God, he will go before God and intercede on behalf of the people. This is the role of the priestly office to come before the people on behalf of the Lord and to go before the Lord on behalf of the people. 
It's interesting because this too is another biblical pattern that God foreordains and chooses specific people and he makes sure their lineage is right. Think about the detail we get of Samuel's lineage, of David's lineage. And of course, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are portions of those Gospels given to defining why Jesus' lineage goes all the way back to David and goes all the way back to the lineage of Abraham. And so this little boy was chosen by God for something significant. So what does the mother do? How do you hide a baby? Well, if you live next to a rushing water that creates a lot of noise, you create an ark, a basket, and you put the baby in the reeds so he does not float away, he does not drown. And of course, even though you may be watching a child, you never leave a child unwatched. You know that when your little ones learn to swim, Even though they're swimmers, until they reach a certain age, you don't go inside if they're in the swimming pool. You keep somebody around to keep an eye on them. And so Moses' sister was watching the baby during the day. There's no reason to believe this all happened in one day. The text doesn't tell us, but it seems very likely that that this could have been a pattern, that the boy would be kept out here in the reeds where his cries could not be heard, And then he'd be taken back to his mother to be nursed and then taken back. Imagine the pain. Imagine the heartache. Imagine the difficulty, the cumbersome logistics of trying to keep him alive. And the sister was watching. And by the way, the text never indicates that he was placed to be found by Pharaoh's daughter. This is where the Lord gets involved. Look what the Bible says. The Bible says, beginning in verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. How would she have known? Several reasons. One, his clothing. He's the son of slaves. But two, what mother in their right mind would hide a baby? Only a mother who's living under the cruel oppression of a kingdom, heart set on killing the baby. And by the way, the king who issued the decree, this is his daughter. And yet we see, ladies, even among the Egyptian women, There is this innate desire to feel love and compassion toward the most vulnerable. I love the celebration of biblical femininity in here. And we find her immediately not thinking of her father's policy. We find her immediately not expressing any fear. We find her saying, I'm going to do something about this. And this is where the ingenious heroism comes in. Who's been watching the ark, the basket? Well, Moses' oldest sister. Moses' older sister's watching it, so she emerges very quickly. This is a big deal to approach royalty. And what does she say? She knows that Pharaoh's daughter is looking for a solution. This, by all accounts, is a young woman. She has women attending her. She's not ready to be burdened by a baby, and she certainly can't nurse a baby unless she happens to have had a child at that same age. She's not prepared to be a wet nurse. She's not prepared to be a surrogate. And so Moses' sister seizes the moment and says to her, Your Honor, Your Majesty, 
Can I go fetch a Hebrew woman to take care of this baby for you? Look what happens. I love it beginning in verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now watch verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. (laughs) Moses' sister said, I just happen to know a Hebrew woman who happens to be nursing, so she has milk to give, who probably could make time in her day planner for this baby. Now, I love this irony. Watch this now. The royal household intent on killing Hebrew baby boys ends up paying a Hebrew woman to nurse her own son. Only my God can orchestrate the sovereign control of this situation with such ingenious heroism. Remember what I told you last week? I quoted that tweet from John Piper. Remember God's doing like 10,000 things in your life at any one point, and you might know three of them. Don't forget that all this is at work to preserve a son. And remember, remember, we're going to have another baby boy. His life's going to be threatened by a wicked king. And his parents are going to flee to Egypt to save his life. Come on now. And they're going to save his life. And they're going to raise him. And even some outsiders known as the Magi are going to show up and say, this surely is a king. Don't ever let anybody convince you that this is some fragmented book put together by grown men manipulating people spiritually from the echoes of antiquity. No, no, no. This is one story of a good God weaving together a redemptive plan to get to you and to get to me. And so look what happens. Look how the story ends, scene one rather. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. There's a whole rabbit hole we could go down theologically about. Is this a Hebrew name? Is this an Egyptian name? Could she have known a little bit of Hebrew? But the root of the word has some connections to both cultures. But this idea of being drawn out of terror, drawn out of fright, drawn out of water. Now, I don't want you to romanticize this story. If you've ever been with someone through the adoption journey, one of the most joyous occasions is the gotcha day. Oftentimes, especially when we adopt children from undeveloped worlds, there may be little known about their actual birth date. There'll be a certificate, but the accuracy of it is usually up for debate. And so what families will do is they will always celebrate the day that the child came into their family. And it's called a gotcha day. And it's a wonderful and joyous day. But even today, when you have a gotcha day, You have to acknowledge that the undercurrent of this joyous occasion, which is God's way of redeeming a life, is that there's a mother who gave up that life. There's a mother who couldn't raise it or wouldn't raise the child. We don't know often the backstory. We know decisions to give up children for adoption require a great deal of courage. And as a pro-life people, we should celebrate birth moms who do choose to bring life into this world and then make the hard decision to give it to a family that may can care for it better than them. But I'm reminded 
of the mixed of emotions that may be being experienced by Moses' mother. On one hand, she's playing hide and seek with Egyptian soldiers, and then the sister comes back and says, Here, not only can you keep him, Pharaoh's daughter has said he must live, and they're going to pay you to take care of him. What elation! But Mama, when he gets a little older, she wants him back. I'm reminded of Solomon who was approached by two prostitutes. One had a dead baby, one had a living baby. The prostitute who lost her baby claimed the living baby was hers. And so Solomon had two women and one baby, and they were fighting over who the mother is. You know the wonderful story of Solomon's wisdom. He pulls a sword. He says, divide the child. Give half to one and half the other. The Bible tells us in the Kings, I'll put it on the screen. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child. And you by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. The scripture goes on to tell us, Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is the mother. The definition of a true mother is that she will endure the pain of saying goodbye to a child if that means the child could live and have a better life. This is what happens, and Moses is rescued. Oh, I remember Mary pondering all that Jesus would go through and standing at the foot of the cross, giving up her son so that I might have life. When we begin to think about the way in which God moves, don't romanticize the fact that it does involve real human sacrifice. And now we find that Moses is raised in the home of the king he will oppose. And the Bible moves to scene two. I would call scene two rejected. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, thankfully, because of the New Testament, we know he's not just grown up. He's grown, grown up. Moses is 40 here, 40 years old. So he's lived his entire life as an Egyptian in the home of Pharaoh. We don't have any biblical evidence that he had no interaction with his family. We don't know. He would have had a great deal of freedom and authority as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, a grandson of Pharaoh. But other than that, the text doesn't supply us a lot of detail. But he's a grown man now, and he's well aware that he of his birth origin is a Hebrew, and he can't get away from it. The text here is full of meaning when it says, he saw his people and he observed one of them being beaten. There's a lot of people you never read about, y'all to read about. I think about Lemuel Haynes. Lemuel Haynes lived in our world way back in the 1700s. He was born in 1753 and he died in 1833. His father was black, his mother was white. He was given up at birth by his birth parents. You can imagine the multitude of complexities that dealt with an interracial child in the 1700s of a new America, which was then, of course, colonial America. 
He ended up with a family in Vermont who were strong believers. He was classified as an indentured servant being raised by them, but he would later say they treated him like one of his own. As an early young man, early in his life, he began to read and he loved theology. The children make fun of him because in the evening after chores were done, he would sit by the stove by the light of the fire and read great literature and theology. He came to faith in Jesus and was strongly devoted to his faith. He also actually fought in the Revolutionary War because he believed in the ideas of America and democracy. He would later become the first black abolitionist, the abolitionists were the ones who opposed slavery openly, whose motives were theological, not just political, not just social. His writing against slavery shows a heart for his people, but a heart for the gospel. This is where Moses is. Moses is beginning to recognize that his people are his people, and though he may live in the comforts of the house of the king, he can no longer allow their plight to be their plight. And what tips him is that he sees one of his people being beaten to the point that he has to do something. And what we're going to find as we study Moses is that he's full of frailties. He makes all kinds of mistakes. But there is this desire within him to bring justice to situations, to right wrongs. Moses is the kind of guy that runs toward the sirens, towards the fire, or towards the threat. And so he sees this happening. His heart's in the right place. His timing's way off. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 11, rather verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So he killed the Egyptian. He avenged the beating of the Hebrews. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. So one day, He's righting a wrong. He's defending. He's avenging. He's killing an Egyptian who was wicked and beating the Jew. The next day, he sees two of his own fighting one another, and that frustrates him. Look what the Bible says in verse 14. In verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man of the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, so this is the Hebrew, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Can you hear the cynicism? Can you hear the people saying, hey, guess where you woke up this morning? In Pharaoh's house. Who made you in charge of us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And boom, we know you can't ever hide anything. They knew. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. This is the only part of Moses' life that Acts is mentions Stephen's preaching about Moses to people who put all their faith in Moses, but they've rejected Jesus. And Stephen, in the book of Acts, preaches this message about Moses and tells the story from Acts chapter 7, verse 23, down to verse 25, that this is your Moses whom you're staking your whole life on. He killed a man, and he did so with a heart and a motive that was right, but his timing was all wrong. Listen to me. You can have the best of intentions and the best motives, but if you don't accomplish God's will, God's way, it won't be blessed by God. Timing matters. And what you have to recognize is by the time we get to him sitting at the well, let's think about all that he's been 
all that has been lost in his life. One, he couldn't live with his mother, rejected. Two, he's been rejected by the house he was raised in. Three, he's now been rejected by the very people he feels a heart and a desire to avenge. This is going to keep coming up. Fast forward in the book of Exodus, there's this moment where Pharaoh's army is coming after the Jews. And then they say to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? They go on to say, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, these are the people that cried out to God for liberation, and he liberated them. These are the very people whom Moses' heart is for. And these people, again and again, reject and push back his leadership. I, I do not want to spiritualize this text, and I do not want to take this wonderful big story and only pull individual application, but you hear me here. Sometimes the people in your life that need the most help will be the hardest-headed people you've ever dealt with. You don't give up, you remain faithful, but you serve them on God's timing, in God's way, according to God's will. You don't allow their behavior to dictate how you minister to them. And so he's rejected. But then scene three is really cool. He's received, not by the Israels, uh, the Israelites, the Hebrews, not by the Egyptians, but by foreigners. By the Midianites. Look what the Bible says in verse 16. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. Here again, here's Moses. He ain't got an iron in this fire. He doesn't have anything in this fight. But these young ladies come to draw water and all of a sudden these shepherds, these cowboys of the day, push them out. Get away from here. We're going to water our flocks. And Moses said, you're not going to mistreat these young women like this. Look what the Bible says happens. The Bible says in verse 18, when they came home to, the, or excuse me, verse 17, the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, they said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian, notice how Moses looks to them. He looks like an Egyptian. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Now listen, he did the work of seven young women after whooping up on some shepherds. This is a man's man, okay? Now the Bible says he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. If I saved the life of seven young women and they came and asked me to eat, I believe I'd go too. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Christian. Now notice this, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. One of the things we notice about Moses is he's an outcast, he's a protector, he's a shepherd. I seem to remember a savior who was rejected by his own people, who always stood for right, and who said, I am the good shepherd. See, learning about Moses is going to help us see Jesus more fully. And don't miss that in many cases in the Bible, marrying outside of your people is discouraged. It's not for racial reasons. Racists have used that argument for years. It's wrong. It's for religious reasons. 
God wanted his people to marry members of his family. We believe that today. I would never encourage a young man or young woman in our church who's committed to the Lord Jesus to marry someone who does not also love the Lord Jesus. If you are here today walking with the Lord and you are married to someone who does not believe or is not walking with the Lord, I'm not in any way suggesting that God cannot use you or bless your marriage. I certainly would ask you to keep your vow and be committed. The Bible speaks to that and says that you are to live out the gospel in front of them to be a witness. But if you give me the opportunity to speak into someone's life before they make the decision, I would strongly discourage them and tell them that the Bible clearly teaches to not be unevenly yoked, that we should marry those who follow and love the Lord Jesus if we follow and love the Lord Jesus. And when we see this happening in the Bible, in many cases it leads to demise. But there are certain times where God brings a foreigner into his people to remind his people, if you reject my covenant, I'll go find some people who follow me. This is what happened in Paul's life. Paul looked at the Jews and said, I would give up my salvation if you would come, but if you won't listen, I'll go to the Gentiles. Because God will save any person, regardless of their background, ethnicity, sin, struggles, skin color, language, doesn't matter. If they turn to him in faith and repentance, he does not see like we see. He sees every human being made in the image of God, which then we find Moses living in a foreign land. The Egyptians want to kill him. He's rejected by his people. He's given a wife, and here he is in the wilderness, and we're set up for something special. And what's coming? Well, the last scene is the last few verses remembered look how this ends it's a postscript in verse 23 during those many days the king of egypt died and the people of israel groaned because their slavery had cried out for help their cry for rescue from slavery came up to god and god heard their groaning god remembered his covenant with abraham with isaac and with jacob listen to this now god saw the people of israel and god new very quickly this postscript lays it out perfectly he gets us ready for a burning bush pharaoh died the suffering continued the people of god finally started praying we're tired of this we need you to deliver us god remembers now, whenever we use words to describe human activities for God, we have to qualify them. Since all knowledge comes from God, God never forgets anything. So this idea of him remembering is not him going, you know what, I totally forgot that the Hebrews were down there. I, I, I did say something to Abraham about this. No, no, no. When God heard the cries of his people, remembered his covenant, signifying him moving to keep the promise he had made. Commentator way back in the 60s said it this way. I, I love it. It's why you got to read outside your decade. He said, God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object of his memory. The essence of God's remembering lies in his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment. God's getting ready to do something. And you know what I thought so cool about this? It says God knew. He's not distant from the suffering of his people. In fact, he knew 
the day he allowed Moses' mother to conceive. He knew the day he saved Moses from Pharaoh. He knew the day he drove Moses in his rejection and ill-timed effort into the wilderness. God knew. And I couldn't think of any better way to end this morning than by emulating God. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember. As you take your Lord's Supper packet and you prepare to take it with me, if you are a guest, you're welcome to participate if you have a relationship with the Lord. The Bible says if you don't know the Lord, and this is not for you, if there's something in your life between you and the Lord and you want to deal with that instead of taking communion, we encourage you to do that. We are very serious about believers who are following the Lord Jesus taking communion. But I want to tell you something, church family. If you grew up in churches like I did, the table, the Lord's Supper, was on have this big word in it, remembrance. This do in remembrance of me. It's from the old King James Version. That's why it's spelt that way. Remembrance of me. We remember what Christ did. You know what's cool about that? The writer of Hebrews, in talking about the total forgiveness of God, says these words. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You know what that means? That means I remember that he does it. When I take the cup and I take the bread, I remember that what these represent totally washed me. I remember the one thing God has said he will remember no more. I remember that my sins, which I am well aware of, in the view of God's wrath, are gone. He remembered his covenant to bring forth a people who will bring forth a son, who will go to a cross, who will conquer a grave, so that when he looks upon me, he never remembers my sin. On the night of Jesus' arrest, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. As often as you eat it, do so in remembrance of me. The Bible says, even so, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant given for you. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to worship our way out of here, remind us that you remember your covenant so that you do not remember my sin. And may we worship and live this week as a people who remember the faithfulness of our God. A God who remembered us so that he might die to remember our sins no more. In Jesus' name.